Hi, this is Spider-Man, and I'd love to stick around and listen to amazing Spider-Talk, but Madam Web just told me Doc Ock is about to kidnap Mary Jane Watson, and well, a spider's gotta do what a spider's gotta do. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm mischievous Marchinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. But, Dan, we all know the annuals don't count. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, for a special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at Spider-Man's universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show, starting back with the first season? And you can do that by subscribing to our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or any other podcast player of choice. We seem to be just about everywhere. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Now, Dan, today we're going to be doing something a little different because we're going to be discussing our thoughts on Spider-Man Far From Home. But don't worry, if you haven't seen the movie yet, we'll be starting off with our general thoughts in a spoiler-free section before we move into some spoilers. Uh, We'll be sure to let you know when that happens. Plenty of bells and whistles and alarms. So you go see the film and listen to the second half of the show on the ride home from the theater, right? And then after Mark and I have our discussion about Far From Home, which should be the most of the episode, I'm going to be joined by a special guest, Scott Corelli of the Spider-Man Minute Podcast, another great Spider-Man podcast that both of us have appeared on in the past, to talk about all of our favorite obscure Easter eggs in the film. I brought Scott with me to the theater and tasked him joining me on the Easter egg hunt. So that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about all the little things that we found in the film. And you can kind of compare whether you saw all of them or maybe there was one or two you missed and you got to go back and see it again. Sounds like a plan, Dan. I, I, I eagerly <laughs> await that because as I was saying to you off air here, I'm terrible at spotting Easter eggs when seeing a movie for the first time. I got to see it a couple of times before I can kind of put that headset on. Yeah. So if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. It's the way that we keep the lights on and keep this podcast going. Without the Patreon, this episode would likely have never happened. Well, enough of that, Mark. The people at home can't wait to hear what we have to say about Spider-Man Far From Home. What's new? All right, Mark, I got to see Spider-Man Far From Home about 
a week ago, and I'm still really – I got to be honest. I'm still kind of processing how I feel about it. You know, it, it's kind of a complicated film, and I'm not going to get into the details of why I feel that way here just yet. But uh, I wanted to ask you about, like, the circumstances via which you saw the movie. Yeah, unlike you, I'm not some fancy Hollywood dweller. So, you know, seeing movies before they come out, it's a bit a bit of a bit of an arduous task for me. But fortunately, I got a, a special invite to a, a screening via United Airlines, which, you know, they're all over this movie, right, Dan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. The, the promotional stuff for this, is, it's all throughout the film. You can't make that mistake, yeah. Yeah, I mean, instead of, instead of um, trailers for movies, like before the movie started, we actually got like the in-flight video they've been using apparently on their flight using spider-man <laughs> so i mean so total united but thank you united for the invite uh my wife and i got to go to a friday night screening uh and it was great we had a, we had a great time but yeah dan i mean like it's 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 funny um you know i think we both really enjoyed homecoming the first of these of these tom holland movies i think you probably enjoyed it a little more than i did but i certainly am a fan um, so I was kind of going into this movie, anticipating it, but like, you know, some reservations about what to go. And, and it's funny, like the things that I had reservations about in this movie didn't actually end up bothering me. Um, but I did have some issues with it. So I don't know. Do we want to talk about like some of the general issues? Because I think we have one very big issue that's simultaneous and it's not a spoiler that we could probably just talk a little bit about. Right. Well, I'll just give my general thoughts as well. Like you said um, about walking into the theater, I was going in pretty like blank slate. I kind of wanted to see what it was because I think the most exciting thing about these movies is that they are kind of like the remix culture Spider-Man. So like walking into this, I felt like of any Spider-Man movie that I've seen or been walking into, this is the one I felt like I knew the least about going into it, you know, like Mysterio advertised as a good guy and, you know, like Spider-Man in Europe, like these are things that are not staples of the genre, specifically Spider-Man comics and Spider-Man movies. So, you know, I felt like I was just kind of waiting to see what the movie did, but um, you're right. I did have some reservations walking in, uh, I think surrounding the typical things like, you know, how would they pull off Mysterio or... You know, is Tom Holland Spider-Man still going to be Spider-Man, which is a conversation that has sparked a lot of kind of online Internet fury over the past few years since Homecoming came out. There's people that really just don't treat this character as though it's an accurate representation of Spider-Man. And I can see where they're coming from, although I don't subscribe to that belief. But, I do, you know, I did have that worry kind of going into it. And we'll discuss these topics Later, I just kind of want to lay it out there, like where my headspace was at walking into the movie. Yeah, and and I mean, and not for nothing. When I was referring to reservations earlier, I think they were tied into that because I mean, not I I, I don't I generally come out on the side of of what you think is that I don't totally buy into this idea of who you know that it's not Spider Man, but you know there were elements about Homecoming that kind of had me kind of teetering in that direction to a degree not not you know not totally buying it but like kind of being open to that argument from people depending on depending on my mood of that day because you know I, and I had the same I've actually not seen the Venom movie yet um, but like kind of my my criticism of that has always been you know it's it's a Venom movie that doesn't really seem to be based on anything 
any adapted from anything that we know from any kind of real source material because it doesn't even have Spider-Man in it. So, you know, it's like you're taking an established IP and this doing something whole, you know, totally different with it. I mean, at that point, why not just create a new character if you're going to do that? I don't think we're even close to that level here with this version of Spider-Man and we could talk about that in more detail, but um but you know, there were there there were I had some doubts where it was like, well, if they go too far in one direction in the sequel here, maybe we'll be teetering into that territory, but I don't think they did. All right, so let's I think we can address our first like major complaint and I don't want to start this off with a negative because I think you know, if, if I, from what I've talked to you, Mark, you enjoyed the film, right? And, and I did too. So I think, like, just getting into our general thoughts on the film, Mark, we both really enjoyed it. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a good Spider-Man film. I think I think the way I would put it, the way I've, a couple of people have asked me, well, what would you think? How does it compare to other Spider-Man movies? And I would say. It's not my favorite Spider-Man film, but it's better than all of the bad Spider-Man films. And I think I think we can kind of say in terms of the bad spider I know I don't mean to be harsh about it, but you know, when we're talking about the lesser Spider-Man movies, we're talking about Raimi's third film and we're talking about both Mark Webb films, right? I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's fair. I, I still have a lot of respect for Raimi's third film in the craft element of it, which is something that I feel like neither of these MCU films have been able to match, like the pure level of craft mm. that was on display in all three Raimi films, plot notwithstanding in the third movie. But yeah, I think it's it's elevated above those, and, and I would put it well above the amazing films and well above... Spider-Man 3 and that it tells a far more more coherent story and one that you can really get caught up in. But yeah, I I don't I mean it's it's not on the level of like a Spider-Man 2, a Homecoming or an Into the Spider-Verse for me, but I don't feel like it's like that far flung from that territory, you know. It, it it's somewhere on the upper end in between. Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair assessment, but since we were kind of going in the direction of starting with a negative, let's start with a negative. <laughs> with all that said, no, I mean, like to me, and I think I said this even about Homecoming when we podcasted about it, this this feels like two movies to me and um, a very good movie starting about an hour into it after a certain uh, you know twist in the plot. And then, but but the first movie, first movie had a lot of problematic areas, Dan. Like it, like the, the the plot didn't make sense. You you mean the first half Correct. of this movie? Correct. Sorry, the first half of Far From Home really seemed to be kind of struggling to find what it was about. There there just didn't seem to be any stakes to it. Um, I feel like it treats its characters like they were dumb i feel it treats its audience like it was dumb and i don't I, i'm not saying like oh you know like in a like like a really like gnashing the teeth kind of way but i feel like you know in trying to keep up a certain uh appearance about who everyone was in this movie like they they really were like they just were they, i feel like the the script and the direction it just didn't go all in and even though i found the performances to be good throughout i enjoy the cast i enjoy the interpretations of these characters uh, the, the story was just lacking any punch or bite to it, and it really scuffled for like the first hour or so. And I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. The first, like, I'd say, like, yeah, forty-five minutes, an hour. I really was worried about the movie, um, and I think it's maybe a little over reliant on what's coming next. And it's really hard to talk about this without 
spoiling anything or <laughs> getting into the details of it. And I really don't want people to be spoiled for this because it's not what you're expecting. Uh, you know, even for hardcore Spider-Man fans like ourselves, I, I found myself at times really kind of caught off guard by where the story went. Even if I like walking into theaters was kind of predicting elements of it, it's the details that make it really fantastic. And there's a scene halfway through this movie where the whole movie changes and it just comes to life, uh, you know, out of nowhere. Yeah, um, and and you know, like like you, I'm having a hard time kind of being specific and and trying to and trying to remain spoiler free. I mean, but like I said, it, it just felt like there was just a lot of contrivances in terms of like high school hormones and whatnot. I mean, like there was nothing. It's funny, like. Part of me was worried, you know, one of my apprehensions going into this was like the mechanics of how they would get Peter to Europe and would it be forced or not, especially in light of, of Endgame uh, and, and what we learned what happened with Endgame, which was that, I, can I spoil Endgame, Dan? Are we game to do that now? Or, I mean, we already spoiled it in another we're podcast. Spoiling, we're spoiling Endgame. So if you haven't seen Endgame... Stop listening to this. Yeah. So, I mean, with the mechanics being that we are five years into the future and it just so happened that like Peter and all of his uh, castmates were were snapped out of existence by Thanos in in Infinity War. I was kind of curious how that was all going to be addressed and integrated. And again, without spoiling it now for Far From Home, I would say that I was mostly satisfied with that transition. I, I, I got some laughs out of it. Um, in terms of how they addressed it. I mean, it's still like, you know, when you really think hard about it, like just the entire premise of bringing a few billion people back into a world that was not, you know, where they didn't exist for five years, um, you know, the world would collapse upon itself and this would all be over. Uh, There would be no class trips to Europe. Uh, But hey, (laughs) we're putting that aside and we're sending the kids to Europe. And I think like they played that kind of well and I feel that they played Peter's role in wanting to just get away from it all and have a vacation I thought that was handled pretty well in terms of how they did it here I totally agree with that and I think they utilize Aunt May and her role in the world in an interesting way in regards to the five year time jump and yeah I don't think it's quite as deep as you would want but I think if you're coming to these movies expecting them to handle it like uh, you know Jane Eyre or something you're probably going in the wrong the, the wrong direction, although sometimes these movies want to treat their subject matter quite seriously. So, whatever, they're having their cake and eating it too, but in the case of this movie, I think it really works. And it provides a kind of satisfying you know, update on what the world is like in, in some ways. What I, what I, I mean, you talk about treating itself seriously. What I've liked about both of these Spider-Man movies so far is I feel like, I mean, okay... They're the funny movies. You could say Ant-Man, the two Ant-Man movies are the funny movies, too. But the Ant-Man humor is almost kind of like a hipster kind of humor, whereas I feel like these these two Spider-Man movies are really kind of kitschy <laughs> and, and yeah. goofy. And and they're consistent, and it works because they're consistent about it. Like, they like they play certain things for really goofy kind of dad jokes, and and because they do it consistently throughout, I can't complain about it. And I feel like in essence, that's how they handled the snap here was by making a bunch of dad jokes about it. And that was fine because I was laughing at him. I don't know. Maybe because I'm a dad. <laughs> yeah, it definitely made me laugh. I, one thing that I do think is a little lacking in this movie, and I wouldn't say that Homecoming was a real visual stunner. Like, it's my favorite MCU movie, but I don't think its visuals are particularly 
like, you know, as like honed to say something like a Guardians, which has like a very distinct visual style. Uh, you know, this movie, to me, there were moments where I felt like it could really have been punchier, especially in the first half with its like visual gags. Like they just weren't selling it to me, uh, especially for like uh, a movie that takes place all over Europe. I was waiting for some more really distinct visual ideas um, out of this. And maybe that's a lot to ask for from the MCU at this point, where a lot of the action is shot with like second unit directors and things like that. But I, I've seen the MCU do that in, you know, Endgame and in Infinity War really provide some thoughtful, interesting visuals. Yeah. And I think both of these movies are still kind of lacking that. I mean, it's directed by comedy directors and comedies aren't necessarily known for their like, you know, cinematic visualization, but that's something I still uh, miss a lot of. And I felt like if the visuals were more up to par, the first half of this wouldn't felt like such a drag. It's funny you're saying all that, and I wasn't even thinking this going in, Dan, but it kind of reminds me, you know, in terms of a comic book analogy when we were reviewing the Parker Industries stories from Dan Slott, where, you know, they were establishing Peter as kind of this, you know, uh, world-traveling business mogul, and, you know, he's in Hong Kong, and he's in London. Um, But, like, you know, outside of, like, the occasional, like, there's Big Ben... Uh, there's some Chinese writing on, on the side of a building. There was no like true local flavor or interesting sets in those comics. And I think you could say the same for this. I mean, they're in Europe and there's a couple like, oh, there's there's the, the canals of Venice and there's there, there's uh, the Tower Bridge in London. But like, I don't know, for the most part, it kind of felt sterile in that regard in terms of the setting, right? They're all used for set pieces. They're not used for, like, local flavor. There's, like, uh, I mean, I, I don't think this is much of a spoiler. There's a moment in the Netherlands that gets a good laugh, and I thought that that was, like, a nice moment where we finally get to see, you know, like, what this country is uniquely known for in terms of its, like, populace and the attitude there. But, like, yeah, they, you know, you watch the trailer, they go to Venice, but all you see is the main bridge, you know? There's not really you know, too much going on in regards to like how unique Venice is in, in any way. And that one probably has the most flavor of like all the places like London in this movie is purely like tower bridge, big Ben, you know, Berlin. I couldn't even tell you like what happened in Berlin of, right. of significance. Right. So, yeah, I mean like at least it's splashy in that regard. Like the set pieces are fantastic um, but, uh, I mean, literally fantastic. The movie has such a brisk pace. There's not a lot of time to really slow down for that kind of stuff. So let's talk characters here, Dan, because that's, I think, probably going to be one of the hot button issues with this movie from fans who've seen it. So, I mean, obviously, as we said earlier on, even after Homecoming, there were some complaints about this interpretation of Spider-Man. Um, you know, one of the big things and I don't think this is a spoiler because this is certainly true for Homecoming is this basically the overall lack of Uncle Ben Um, you know for me you know I was kind of okay initially in Homecoming without having the floating head of Uncle Uncle Ben Gilt you know we've gotten that we've had it you know I don't know if I needed it again Um, but you know at some point you do kind of want to get a sense of what's actually driving Peter and motivating Peter. Why does he want to be a hero? Why does he want to be an Avenger? Why does he want to do any of this? You know, like like in terms of his journey over these two movies. 
So here, you know, like it's it's funny. Like we, I think we got even less of that than what we got in Homecoming in terms of the guilt and the motivation and the drive. But like this, there's still something there. There's an essence there to, and maybe it's just Tom Holland's performance, or maybe there's this just enough in the script to get to to leave it there. It, it's it feels like Spider-Man. It feels like Peter. These feel like Peter problems. These feel like this feels like a teenager struggling with being a hero, trying to do the right thing, constantly screwing up, dealing with the Parker luck, having bad luck with his friends, but you know still fighting for them. I don't know. It feels like Spider-Man to me, and I just can't. I'm, I, I can't be convinced otherwise. So, you know, I don't know how you feel on that. It's like 90% there for me. Um, I think all the stuff you're talking about is 100% there. Like the Parker luck is there. Maybe not on the level of, you know, how it appears in like Spider-Man 2 where everything literally goes wrong for him and falls apart. Um, but it's there. And, and really, it is the kind of the same balance that we started to see in Homecoming, which is... How do you find time to be a teenager when the world is expecting something else out of you? And that's elevated here because in the first film, the world didn't want him. The world wanted him to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And in this movie, the world wants something even grander out of him. And he doesn't know whether he feels like he deserves that, which is almost the, it's almost the counter arc to, to Homecoming, which is like he learned the lesson in Homecoming that he should just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And in this movie, they're telling him, no, you shouldn't. Right. And that was interesting to me, if a little confusing. And I I don't want to get into the details of it, but I found Spider-Man's overall arc in this movie to be kind of all over the place. It just was not as clear as in Homecoming, which I think is crystal clear. Although if you were to go on the internet and ask people, it seems a lot less clear to them, so I'm curious to see how people react to this. Um, but in regards to the Uncle Ben thing, like, I, I mean, I think we can say it, right? Uncle Ben is not in this movie. Yeah, he's, he's got, his initials are on a suitcase. I think that's all you're going to get of him. Yeah, and that's in the trailer. And to me, like, I agree with you. It still feels like Spider-Man, but the thing that's missing is um, a level of dramatic weight to the proceedings that I feel like the guilt element of the uncle would add to it. And it's not that it's like the not Spider-Man. It just, I don't think it can ever truly get to the level of depth that we got in the peak climactic moments of say, like Spider-Man two and, and Spider-Man one, or even homecoming when he's buried under the rubble. I felt like his mission as the character Spider-Man was a lot more central and his feelings of responsibility were a lot more central. Whereas in this movie, the Spider-Man stuff feels almost like incidental. Like he just puts the costume on to become a superhero and there's not that weight attributed to it. Am I crazy here? It just feels like Spider-Man is reserved for set pieces. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. I mean, you know, I, I, I think in almost every Spider-Man movie, even the ones that, I didn't really enjoy there's like at least one moment or two where like Peter will put on the suit and it's kind of like this moment of like all right here we go like 
it's Spider-Man time. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, there's a dramatic heft to it because like he is, you know, that's, that's, that's always at the core of who Peter is. It's, it's, he's, he's an, he's an unwilling hero, you know, like, like he, he does this because he's responsible. He feels responsible to do it, not because he necessarily wants to do it. Uh, and that's always, I think the struggle of pushing and pulling him. And I feel you know, a lot of these movies get that. Maybe not the web movies as much, but even still, there's like that element of like him having to make that choice. And yeah, there was no point in this movie where I was like, "All right, here comes Spider-Man." You know, like he's gonna, he's he's about to do Spidey stuff. You know, like it's like you say, it kind of just kind of flows from there to there. And that's not to say there aren't satisfying hero moments for him in this movie. Oh no, there are some very satisfying ones. Yeah. But like it's it's but like you said, it, there there's there's they they all seem to be lacking a layer of gravity and depth. That maybe could it be Uncle Ben, or could it just be just a general treatment of the character and 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 missing that one little essence of who he is? I don't know. I think it's it, it could be you know both. Like for me, in Homecoming, Spider Man is the one driving the action. He's you know, it's a perfect distillation of who a teenager, what you know, what all teenagers are, which is like trying to prove themselves as an adult, but also distrusting adults and, you know, kind of working their own lives behind the scenes. And that's what Peter was doing in that movie, right? He's trying to, you know, appeal to Tony Stark, who's ignoring him, but also kind of going out and taking on tasks that are beyond his ability. Um, and he has to learn the lesson of, like, being happy with where He's at, but he's always driving the action, even the choice at the end where he denies his adulthood in the form of that costume, you know, like it's a perfect teenage story. Whereas here, uh, the, the story is not as Peter driven and by its very essence. Uh, and I feel like it robs him a little bit of his agency in, in the movie. Um, like he literally makes a decision at one point and other forces tell him, nope, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was really interesting to me. Like, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting narratively, but it did rob a little bit of the, like, cheering I had for the character. Now, in terms of the rest of the cast, you know, which, again, I, I have read on the same, probably the same areas of the Internet where you've read them, some problems with, like, Zendaya, Zendaya's MJ and... You know Ned Leeds slash Ganky and <laughs> and all and all of these characters, but like again, like I don't know. There's something I I feel like this is very much since day one kind of been established as like the Breakfast Club John Hughes movie meets Spider Man, and I feel like there's a consistency to it, and that these characters seem to work well with each other, and the and their dynamics all make sense, and. They, they feel true to themselves, so I, it doesn't bother me. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't need MJ to be a model. She could just be a teenage girl who's a little weird and dark. And I feel like Zendaya does a great job in this movie, right? And we'll, we could maybe get there. I mean, Zendaya is a gorgeous person. Like, who's to say she doesn't become a model down the road? But I don't even care about that because she's great in this movie. I like this character a lot. And for like for those who like look at this on a surface level, or like she doesn't look like MJ, and she's too weird, and, and you know yada yada. First of all, I find all of those things really endearing. Like her weirdness is great. It's like kind of like a Daria 
kind of kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I like that a lot. But like we get enough depth, and I'm not going to go into it here, that suggests that she is more alike comic MJ than you know we may have suspected before. There are a couple lines I'd say along the lines of like the Uncle Ben line from. Civil War, where we allude to Uncle Ben, she alludes to things from her past that are affecting the way that she acts now that is very akin to the MJ that we know from the comics. And so, you know, it's just a different take on the character, you know, and a character that, like, is still named Michelle, that it gets called MJ. Like, so I don't even know how seriously we should take all of this. You know, it's a new take on the characters, and frankly... Look, we might we just got done quibbling over whether Spider-Man feels like Spider-Man. Like, look, these questions are good because it means we're engaging with it and asking you know, whether it works or not. And for me, this Zendaya MJ character works 100%. I mean, it just it, it feels alive to me if I feel like I'm watching teenagers interacting in a superhero soap opera. So, like, that's all I need. You know what I mean? Like, I, I believe these characters. I, I, I feel that they all work well together. I feel that there's a chemistry between them. Not just a romantic chemistry, but just a, just a general social chemistry between them all. I mean, Ned, Ned, is, Ned is used a little less in this movie, and that's fine by me. I mean, like, he was very funny in the first movie. Um, so it's not necessarily a slam against, against him or anything. But, like, you know, like... He's still he's still there to provide the comic relief when we need it. I mean, like I don't know, I I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I mean, there was, yeah. I mean, actually, if I had any complaints in terms of the supporting cast, is like I feel, and I, the same can be said for the first movie that Marissa Tomei as Aunt May is horribly underused in these movies. I agree. She has a little more to do here, but by the very very essence that she's not with them, she's not able to do much. I mean, I just feel like, like, I, 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 I would love, I mean, you know, I don't need Aunt May. If you're not going to have Aunt May be, you know, this, you know, 70 year old frail woman, you know, who, you know, needs rescuing all the time. I, I still feel like you can get some punch out of Aunt May being the matriarch and, and, and having a moment with Peter. And, and I feel like we haven't gotten those moments and, Marissa Tomei is a great actress, so you know that she would act the hell out of it if she could sure. do it. So it's like, why, you know, like we just were coming off a movie where all of these people were snapped out of existence for five years. You're telling me that there's like no, and it, and it plays into what we were saying earlier too about the emotional gravitas of these movies. It's like, you're telling me that there was nothing that we really could do that would like give these two characters a moment to really connect in a deeper way than what we got here because it just felt very superficial to me. Why not make her a chaperone on this overseas trip, you know, and, and have her be engaged with the action? The, I mean, the end of the first movie, you know, says she finds out that he's Spider-Man. Like, I don't really get a sense of how that reaction went down, uh, you know, and how she felt about him being gone for five years. Although I guess the, the implication is she was uh, dusted as well. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't need an Aunt May, you know, Parker's have gumption stuff, but it would be nice to get a bit more, uh, with her there. Um, and on that regard, I think a lot of the adults in this movie are kind of a letdown. 
Um, they're all kind of acting a bit broad, and I include Nick Fury in that. And when we get into spoilers, we'll talk more about my feelings about Nick Fury in this movie. But, like, I don't know. I mean, the movie is very clearly kid-centric, but I feel like they kind of, like, brought the adults down to that level a bit in this movie, except for one person who we're going to talk about in a second who I think is fantastic. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal, man. Like, how great was Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie? <laughs> it's great. Uh, I'll just say this without any spoilers. Mysterio is everything you ever wanted and more. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a fan of the character from the comics, you're going to be happy. And if you know nothing about who this character is... You're going to be happy with it. I mean, like, this is so, I mean, like, my, like, I was with my wife. Now she knows I love Mysterio. I, I, I wore my Mysterio shirt to the, to the movie because I had All to. All right. <laughs> you know the shirt, Dan. I think we, oh, wore, it's a great shirt. I'm it, jealous of that shirt. But she was like, so this guy's pretty cool, huh? After that. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right? Now you get to see it. <laughs> That'll be the only time people think Mysterio is cool. Yeah, yeah. But but Gyllenhaal, like, he, he really does bring it. I mean, even even if there are elements of the script um, that I feel are lacking in certain sections of his scenes, like, he just, like, he's got this charisma uh, and just... You know, knows how to act for the camera and play things up the, to the right amount without overdoing anything. You know, like you could say he's chewing up scenery, but I don't even know it's that. I just think he knows what to do at the right level in every scene in this movie. He is chewing up scenery, but it seems real for that character. Like, it, it never feels like an actor just going overboard. It feels like, oh, this is this guy. I feel like you're right. When the script finally, like, kind of, like, lets Gyllenhaal act is when you get, like, you, this movie comes to life. Like, for me, this movie, like, you can track the what's working in this movie by Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. Excellent. All right. Anything else you want to broadly talk about before we get into some specific spoilers, Dan? Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the visual effects here. One of my complaints about Spider-Man Homecoming is that there's a lot of kind of, like, a fully CGI Spider-Man in a suit that looks really crummy. Uh, like, like on revisits, it's like, wow, how did that get past production and get into, into our eyes, you know, like, and, and it, you know, it goes back to the Raimi stuff. Like the thing I like about the Raimi movies is it never feels like it's a cheat. Like even when it is tricks of like old school tricks of filmmaking, but like it's minimal CGI and it's really kind of just like leaning into like old school movie making tricks. And I know that they make these movies differently, right? They shoot everybody in these kind of like CGI suits and then they design the costumes later and add them onto their bodies. But like, I'm willing to say it now. I think it's a real loss for these movies. And I, I, you know, I know that the production is tight and stuff, but I would really like to see more physical Spider-Man stuff. And we know Tom Holland can do it. Um, but there were many times in this movie where the overwhelming, much more polished CGI in this movie still feels phony to me, especially in a movie like this that is so reliant on what is and isn't real. Like, having non-physical stunts, I felt like there was an opportunity to do more with that and lean into actual production of real physical Spider-Man. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good good assessment. I can be it. more clear about this in spoilers, I think. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, so on that note, um, go see the movie. Like, immediately, there are 
more twist than you think. If you think you know the twist in this movie, you don't. Go see, go see the movie. Do we want to give a grade now, Dan? And then, you know, we'll obviously talk about specific stuff and spoilers. Does that sound fair? Or uh... Yeah, that sounds good. So where are you at, Mark? I, I'm giving this a B, which I think would probably put it around the first Raimi Spider-Man movie for me. Yeah, and I will give it a B as well. It's, uh, it's like a 7 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Uh, maybe we should go 1 to 10 for movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's all baloney. None of it means anything. You know what? I'm giving this one three and a half film re- reels out of five film reels. There, there you go, Dad. I love it. All right. All right, let's do some spoilers. You're the Spider-Man from YouTube. Excuse me, I've got to be going. Why? Something has come to my attention. First, we'll see who's behind the mask. I can look into your eyes as you die. Peace. No. It can't be. Does she know? Know what? So she does it. Good. Close to the vest. I admire that. I've got a few secrets of my own. What the f- Spoilers. All right, so if I could elaborate a little bit on what I was just saying. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about Mysterio first, and then I want to talk about my feeling about the visuals in this movie. So okay. Mysterio is not a good guy. Spoilers over. He's yeah, a yeah. villain. Surprise. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's it's... I mean, I almost, like, pause to call that a spoiler because I feel like... Even from the initial announcement, oh, and there's the there's the mysterious man Mysterio who might serve as a father figure to Peter. I was like, I'm calling him BS on that. There's no way that this guy is not going to like shiv Spider Man in the back at some point. Like this is clearly a setup. And you know, I wonder if that I, that kind of colored my perception of the first half of this movie because like they really are just trying to play the first half as. No, he's this guy from another universe that's here to save the world from these elementals. And apparently only he and now Spider-Man are being called upon by Nick Fury, who is not acting anything like Nick Fury, <laughs> to, to, to save the world from these like elemental monsters, these earth, wind, fire, and water monsters, uh, of which we really only see... Water and earth, right? I mean, do we do we and fire? We do see fire, right? No, we see all four of them, Mark. We've got like Cyclone at the bridge, That's we've right. got Molten Man in Venice, we've got Hydro Man in, in Venice as well, or maybe Molten Man's in Berlin, and we get Sandman right when the story opens. Okay, all right, you're right, you're right, but still, it feels I don't know. I feel like we don't get to spend as much time with all of them as we do with some of them. But either way, it, it, the point is, like, this is all just a setup waiting for the Mysterio betrayal. And I feel like it kind of really grinds the first half of this movie to a halt and, and like, takes away all momentum and all stakes from it because you're just waiting for, for this turn and because you don't believe any of it. Or is that just me? Well, you know, I didn't believe any of it either. And, you know... You're expected that you need to believe in it, the movie needs to believe in it, and the characters in the movie need to believe in it. And everybody kind of seems like this is – it's just kind of dumber than we're expecting, right? Like if 
like you need to be able to expect that like what you're seeing could actually be the Spider-Man movie that you signed up to go into, right? Like I need to believe that this movie is about Spider-Man defeating elementals that can tap into the core of the earth and and take over the planet. But in no way did I ever believe that. And maybe that's our jaded comics history, like although that could be something straight out of a comic book. But like it it, I never felt like any of the characters were acting like this was smart enough of a threat to spend a whole movie on, considering the movie opens and we're already kind of, like, done with half of them, like, straight away. So, like, you know a shoe is going to drop, and so all the scenes that you're seeing, you have no faith in. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no rhythm to these scenes, too, like you said, so that kind of throws things off. Like, they are kind of dispatched rather quickly. And, and, and that was the other thing, too. Like, I mean, like... I know that these elementals were kind of modeled off of established villains like water is Hydro Man, fire is Molten Man, etc. But like, I don't know. There's a part of me that like I feel like, you know, these these the the CGI for these elementals. I mean, they're these the, these big grotesque, grandiose things, and yet, like, I really don't feel that there's a threat to any of them. And I almost would have rather have been like, oh, you know, it would have been cooler if you had like Scorpion show up from the first movie and like, you know, there's a fight breaks out and Mysterio has to, you know, saves the day. You know what I mean? Like, it just didn't feel real to me. It just felt like this, like, like I, I didn't, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't a Spider-Man movie. Like, this is weird. Like, what are they, what, what is he doing here? Like, I, I, if, if this was truly the movie that we, that we, like you were saying, that we had signed up for, Spider-Man has to beat the elementals, I would have been really disappointed in it because there was nothing about this that felt like true to Spider-Man. There was no like personal connection or, or you know, street level element to it. Uh, it was just like this really like over the top thing that um, just didn't fit into this universe at all. And I think it's trying to do two different things. Like I would have much rather have seen, we've seen that the projectors can create these like, you know, alternate Mysterio, right? Mysterio and, 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 Quentin Beck are in two different places at the same time, right? So it can do people. And I would much rather have them been, like, the real characters they're modeled after, Molten Man and all this stuff, right? Because Spider-Man has no role in those battles, right? He can't do anything to stop these guys, really. You know, like, when he's fighting Molten Man, it's, you know, it's up to Mysterio to come in and save him. But he's just on, like, kind of scout duty. There's, he doesn't really have a role in these fights. And if it was a human being that he could tangibly defeat, you know, then maybe he could have a role. Like they try to give him roles like where he's in like a clock tower and it's falling over and he has to stop it or something. But it's not, it feels inherently like it's keeping him away from the battle to, you know, to shield us from the realization. But I think it's also trying to comment on the villains that we see in these movies in the MCU, where they're all kind of larger than life and the stakes feel completely meaningless until we, you know, but, and, and they're, you know, countering that in some way with Mysterio being like a real, you know, guy behind the CGI, right? Like there's a whole section of this movie where Mysterio is wearing a CGI costume, right? That an actor would wear, you know? And to me, it's kind of like making fun of like the, the CGI in the movie and the kind of inflated spectacle of it all being really hollow and not satisfying, um, which is, like, great, except that, like, this gets back to my original problem with it is Spider-Man is also CGI and not believable. And I feel like if he was, like, a real dude 
and could cut through these CGI holograms, like that commentary would have landed a lot harder. And the kind of satirical edge this movie is trying to take would have actually had a real bite to it. Um, but then at the same time, also, yes, like those big inflated monsters are just any other inflated monster we've seen and forgotten about in the history of the MCU. Very true. So what'd you think of Mysterio's origin and and background here and his, his connections to Tony Stark? I thought it was brilliant. I thought the the biggest laugh for me in the movie was finding out that like the guy who's providing the tech is the guy that got yelled at in Iron Man 1. I thought that was a brilliant stroke. Yeah, I mean, like, totally reaching back. So, yeah, so these are, you know, Mysterio and, and his crew, they're all Stark industry, like, cast, out, cast outs. So, so um, you know, once again, similar to the Vulture and the, what was his gang called? The, um, the, the Scavengers or whatever. Um, sure, I don't know if they had a name. I, I think that's what they were, well, whatever. They... You know, these are these are people. You know, the the villains in Spider-Man's universe seem to be uh, people that were hurt by Tony Stark's. And you know, again, now we're playing with the whole. You know, Tony Stark has too much influence on Spider-Man and the MCU. But like, to me, that's fine because Tony Stark is the literal godfather of the MCU. Like, it kind of <laughs> makes sense that everything kind of stems from this character. So, uh, I mean, it's more, it's actually kind of more interesting than the comic book version of Tony Stark, if I'm being frank. Uh, I saw someone on the internet guess that the barf system was going to be Mysterio. And, I, like, looking back on that, I wish I knew who that was because that was a really smart guess. But, yeah, I, I agree. I thought that was a great turn. It made sense. Um, and that's the scene where the movie comes to life, I think. Yeah. Like, even the scene preceding it where Peter gives him the glasses, I was like, I'm not really digging this scene. Like, who are all these other people in this scene that they're just openly, like, demasking in front of? Like, there's a lot of, like, weird, like, bloated, inconsequential stuff, like, where they, like, it's chummier than it needs to be. And then when the reveal happens, it's like, okay, those weren't real people. I still don't know why Peter unmasked in front of them. But, like, that scene, all of it started to come to life for me. And I was like, okay, maybe this movie isn't dumb. Yeah. And then as Mysterio is walking through how this is all an illusion to Spider-Man, I mean, to me, this is, like, everything I ever wanted Mysterio, the villain, to be on a big screen, right? I mean, like, from the the fast cuts and just, like, all of the misdirection, you know, from scene to scene to scene to scene to him getting hit by a train at the end, I thought that whole sequence was, like, really unnerving and dizzying and brilliant in terms of this is what Mysterio can do as a film character. And I love that Quentin Beck acknowledges the silliness of Mysterio, right? Like, it is all silly intentionally. Like, it is a guise to play off what the audience and what uh, the people of the Marvel Cinematic Universe expect out of a hero, right? Like, it's almost his, like, mockery of what heroes are. And, And I thought that was really clever. You know, it's like to play the silliness of Mysterio into kind of like an intentional point about like also about like how costume design has changed in the Marvel universe from its inception where we started off with very kind of grounded Captain America in pads, you know, kind of stuff and we've gotten into more fantastical stuff and finally really embraced 
the wackiness of comics in this, you know, the end of the Infinity Saga. Like, to me, the Mysterio character is, like, emblematic of all that. It's like, we can truly get silly now, and people will not even second-guess it. Like, the audience isn't second-guessing how weird he looks. He looks like he belongs. Um, but Quentin Beck is playing that against us. Like I said, this this was everything I wanted. I mean, Gyllenhaal really brings this all to life. He, he so embraces this character and all of its angles. Uh, I mean, he really becomes, uh, you know, a sadistic monster if you will towards the end i mean you know he's ready to kill kids he's you know and it's like i buy it like i mean this is to me this is i mean i i loved michael keaton's vulture in the first movie i think gyllenhaal's mysterio tops that in terms of mcu villains would you agree i think he might be the best mcu villain like i wish he had a better like movie around him but i think he's a really excellent villain definitely all right what else we want to spoil here dan it's uh, the, the world's our oyster (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I love, we haven't talked about Ned and Betty and like, to me, that's like the first step into like, okay, they're like moving him closer to who we know him to be. I mean, it's missing all of the drama of like, it's Peter's ex-girl, but like, I thought that that was really funny and kind of emblematic of the Ned Leeds, Betty Brant relationship. They're in a relationship out of nowhere and it's tumultuous and they're out of a relationship just as quickly. I don't know. I thought it was funny and very schmoopy and it didn't overstay its welcome at all. But again, like it's it's the, the this goofy kitschy kid stuff that I was talking about earlier about that I really kind of appreciate in these movies too. Like I mean, like the very very first um scene in this film when they kind of bring us into what they refer to as the blip which I like to refer to as the snappening, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. the snap. Um, you know, they do this like very hokey morning announcement video to Whitney Houston's I Will Love You with all of this deceased characters um, yeah. <laughs> from uh, Endgame. And I, I mean, I was I was rolling during it because it's just so over the top ludicrous. And I feel like Ned and Betty kind of play into that. And 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 then the the and I forget the name of the character, but the one the one character who is five years older than than the rest of, you know, than <laughs> from when we first saw him, he was a uh, I guess he was. Uh, 11 year old when uh, homecoming happened and now he's the the, the I guess Peter's um, competitor for MJ's uh, attentions and um, I, I, I just like there was just so much about that that was just so over the top do you know where that Brad Davis character comes from Brad Davis thank you okay what, what do tell he comes from the issue with Jigsaw from Amazing Spider-Man where they go on the yacht and Jigsaw takes over the yacht. Oh, my. Uh, he is the star quarterback from Empire State University and Mary Jane's date to kind of, like, make Peter jealous on on the yacht. Way to reach back, Dan. That is impressive. <laughs> so so you, he, that, he, that's, going he, in, that's going in the Easter egg article, I bet. It is. He, he uh, never appears again, but the reason I recognized it was because that character also shows up in the Spider-Man PS4 game. It's the head quarterback of ESU. So for some reason, they keep Sony keeps dipping back into the Brad Davis well. Uh, well. Um, and I thought he was a fine addition to the, the plot here. I feel about him the same way I feel about Flash, which is kind of like their one note, and they don't really know quite what to do with them to integrate them a bit more. But they're fun for what they are. Yeah, I mean, they definitely tried to give Flash some depth at the very, very end when they're all coming back. And he's like, oh, Mother isn't here. I mean, but like, again, like, 
there was nothing about that moment that felt earned. So I just kind of like, I mean, people in my audience actually laughed at it. And I was like, oh, I think they're trying to like give flesh some flash some depth, but it's not really working here. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that moment, if only because I'm a high school teacher at like an elite prep school or whatever in, in LA. And, and Flash is the perfect bully in these movies because that's the kind of bullies that are at the school that I'm at, which is like rich jerks that like use their money and kind of like social status to pick on other people. And it's not like the big burly flash anymore. Right. And like that, his mother is not in his life su- suggests that like, you know, he's this way because the money has allowed his family to ignore him in some way. And uh, that's exactly the sad case with like, I think a number of the students that I, you know, have experience with. And um, so like, to me, that felt like a, a nice way to flesh out the character a little bit. Totally. Want to talk about some Nick Fury stuff? Oh man, talk about problematic, right? <laughs> I mean, I think he's got one good scene in the movie, which is like when he's in Peter's uh, apartment, or you know, or I guess like uh, his hostel room, and he's threatening to take out his friends. You know, that's funny, although it doesn't seem as like stealthy as Nick Fury could possibly have played it, um, knowing the character. But he's kind of become a bit of a like a punchline. Like even in Captain Marvel, I felt like he was a little too like happy-go-lucky for the kind of grizzled spy, although he's younger there. Um, but here, he just kind of acts like a dum-dum the whole movie. Uh, did you feel that way watching it? Oh, yeah. It did, it did not feel... It, something felt off the whole time, and I'm not going to lie. I I wasn't as totally shocked when we found out why something was off as maybe some people might have been. I, I kind of felt something might have been going on there. Do we? I mean, we're already in the spoiler section, but do we want to like go jump all the yeah, way to the second go, singer? We, we find out at the very, the very, very last post-credit singer that uh, Nick Fury and Maria Hill are indeed scrolls. But not in like a bad way. Not in a bad way. We're not, not in the secret invasion way, although it does still kind of make me wonder where Marvel is going with this if we're going to have scrolls and, you know, impersonating established figures like Nick Fury in these movies. You know what I, I mean? feel like they're not doing Secret Invasion and this is their way of saying it. Because it, okay. it's like, it's like, how would you surprise people at this point with that? True. You, you know what I mean? It's like the cat's out of the bag, like, and these are good guys. Like the scrolls just happen to be good guys in the Marvel Universe, apparently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean... So it's Talos is Nick Fury. And like, that's clever. Um, and it made like, I literally with my friend, you know, who Scott, who's going to be coming on the show soon, you know, he and I were sitting there and I said to him after the movie, like, I thought Nick Fury was written really stupidly. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I didn't necessarily feel that way. And I was like, I know it just didn't seem like Nick Fury to me. And then like minutes later, they revealed that to us and like, okay, fine. But I still felt like he was written stupidly throughout the movie. So, like, those emotions were real at the time. And to me, this is, like, the problem with all of this movie, which is, like, for the first half of the movie, it's, like, the whole movie is, like, Nick Fury. It's, like, you're, like, no, this is so dumb. This couldn't possibly be right. And when it's revealed to not be right, you're, like, oh, okay. And you, you're on board. But, like, you still felt that way. Uh, it doesn't erase that feeling. Yeah, and the character Talos even acknowledges, like, oh yeah, you know, maybe maybe the real Fury wouldn't have fallen for it the way I did in terms of Mysterio. I mean, but like, you know, like everything about the first part of this movie feels 
really inorganic and kind of forced in large part because of how Fury is acting and whether that was intentional because it wasn't actually Fury or not, whatever. I still was watching this movie for an hour where everything felt forced. So it doesn't change that. Right. You know what I mean? Like the answer isn't to make him a scroll. The answer is to write a smarter, you know, ruse that Mysterio is pulling on them. Right. Exactly. I, I, that, that you couldn't have said it better, Dan. Um, let's talk about one of my favorite things in the movie, which is the MJ Peter romance that uh, I think is handled really well in this movie in that they allow it to simmer for quite some time. I mean, yeah, Peter, you know, we established very early on is kind of he's pining for MJ early and he wants to make a move on her on this trip. Uh, it, it's very similar in some respects to the Liz Allen stuff from the from Homecoming, except this feels a little more um, earned because, I mean, obviously, you know, Peter and MJ had some moments in Homecoming, but also because, like I, like you said, I feel that like they let it kind of simmer and they toy with it in a really smart way a bit more. I mean, you know, they play some misdirection with MJ and Brad. Uh, they have Ned getting together with Betty, which I think kind of puts the pressure on Peter to step up. Uh, and then Peter, every time he's ready to do something as Spider-Man, as, as you know, as Peter has to get pulled into Spider-Man business. And that's to me like when I was talking about earlier these are the things that feel like Spider-Man comic to me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like the, 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 there's just something undeniable about Peter not being able to get out of his own way and do normal kid stuff because he's got to do Spider-Man stuff. And I like how much she kind of rolls with the punches in that regard. Like, we all knew that she was kind of maybe onto him in the last movie, and here it's even, you know, more heavy-handed, you know, to the point where she outright says, like, you know, I know that you're Spider-Man. And I like how they played it for, like, she wasn't entirely certain. She was floating it, and Peter trips his way, you know, kind of into it by not really denying it strongly enough. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, Before the, you know, like, the Mysterio reveal and stuff like that happens, which I thought was clever. Um, I, I like nearly everything about this relationship. I buy it. I think they have a similar sense of humor, even if... Peter is more awkward in regards to it, but you get the sense that like MJ latches onto this weirdness in herself as a sort of like cover up. Um, there's a line where she like acknowledges like some like trauma from her past that I got the sense it was like the father stuff. Um, she suggests she has an interest, weird relationship with men. Mm. Um, and that's really interesting to me. So the, the weirdness seems like a cover up uh, for like a character that can eventually blossom uh, somewhere down the line. And that's really exciting to me. Uh, did you did you read into that line the same way I did? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that totally felt like an all my past remembered kind of moment for MJ. Exactly. And, exactly. And, uh, I, I felt it was smart, and again, it makes sense in the context of this character. It's not a reach. We're not we're not tacking stuff on here. No, I I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I, I really enjoyed the dynamic between Zendaya and Tom Holland. I think they play off each other well. Um, they you know I don't know if they're quite Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield uh, level in terms of of chemistry. Uh, even though those they're both of my least favorite Spider-Man movies, they had undeniable chemistry. Sure. But, but like, uh, 
I mean, they're certainly, you know, they're certainly far better than Toby and Kirsten Dunst were. And, and it just feels like this feels real to me. This feels like a real teen romance. I, I appreciate it. I thought the, the ending with him taking her web slinging was just wonderful. And I love I love that it wasn't exhilarating for her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 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 because it shouldn't be like, that's got to be terrifying if you're getting taken web slinging. And like, I feel like the comics have always played it as like this romantic grand thing and it's like no this is kind of terrifying (laughs) never do this again yeah (laughs) um the one thing that i think is lacking in regards to this and you referenced toby uh you know mcguire and and uh, kirsten dunst is like the the kiss itself is really uniconic yeah um and i don't need like a big slobbery thing but you can't even see the kiss on camera like it's it's like their faces cover each other up. And it's like, if you're going to build this moment with them, at least give me something memorable. You, you know, like even the Liz one almost got interesting when he's upside down again in the elevator shaft. And it's kind of leaning into the thing from the original Spider-Man movie. You know, like I felt like in this, it was like, you know, give me, give me something to remember, you know, like I'm not going to remember this kiss. I, I'm, I don't even st- today. I can't really picture it. You know, uh, I feel like if this is going to be a grand romance, kick it off with a boom. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you're you're in Europe for for God's sakes. Put it like in a really. I mean, it's, I guess it's on the bridge, but like do something interesting with that visually. Um, I just don't think that the directors were up to the task of creating a memorable image here. Well, they're they're trying to play. I feel like they're trying probably trying to play it off as two awkward kids having a kiss. But the problem is like. You know, I don't know how I feel as the 38-year-old adult watching two awkward kids kiss. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like it's not really like, uh, I, I mean, not that I'm like, you know, a horn dog in a comic book movie. But like, you know, like if, you know, I, I, if I'm, you know, if there's going to be a romantic moment, it needs to kind of resemble a heightened romantic moment or it's not going to work. And and you're right. It doesn't really work in terms of the kiss because I think they're trying to play it too awkwardly. And as a result, it just kind of reads as like, okay, well, this looks like, you know, two kids that, you know, need to get their braces off and, you know, maybe maybe they can kiss in three years or something, you know? <laughs> but, but even that would be a better choice than what we got. Like, what you're describing is, like, an awkward first kiss, which is, like, great. We've not seen Peter, like, kiss anybody yet. You know what I mean? So, like, if that's the way it is, then you want to do an awkward first kiss, then make it an awkward first kiss. You know, I think what we got was, like, nothing. It was, like, a, it was a non-take, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. It just felt like the movie didn't feel comfortable with them kissing, yeah. and neither did the actors, you know? Right. And it's like, well, that's weird, you know? Uh, like, sell it or don't. Right. I'm not I'm not advocating for, like, me be watching, like, two 16-year-olds kiss, although neither actor is that age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's just, like, make, make a choice about how you want to play this moment. Let's get into, like, the climactic scene. Like, I thought that the action was really, like, cool. I didn't love, like, I love the idea of the bots, which is pulled out of Dan Slott's, like, 618 to 620 yeah. uh, Mysterio arc, where he's the control master stuff, you know? I thought that was really cool. I don't love watching a CGI-generated Spider-Man bounce around on CGI-generated robots, but I thought the stuff in the... um kind of like Tower Bridge's elevated section where Spider-Man has to rely on his Peter Tingle um, (laughs) was really great because that's exactly from Mysterio's first appearance, which is like, I can't believe my eyes. I have to rely on my spider sense. 
And um, that was thrilling, I think, also because Mysterio's images never let up in this movie. Because you always think, they always play it like, oh, it's over now. But it never is. And that's always thrilling. Yeah, I mean, they, they, the, the misdirection is endless here, and it really works. I mean, again, I, I really felt the threat in terms of, like, you know, you had Peter, Peter's friends with, with Happy. I thought, I, I thought John Favreau was great as Happy here. I, 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 I enjoyed his role in this movie because I felt like he was kind of there to continue on as the fatherly figure for Peter. But, like, at the end of the day, this is Peter solving problems with his powers, with his own powers, with his own smarts, you know, using his own abilities to outsmart Mysterio. So to me, that worked. It's a moving moment, too, inside the uh, the Quinjet or whatever, where Happy finally gives Peter the suite of Stark tech, and Peter starts, like, experimenting on his own very naturally. And I thought, okay, they're really leaning into the Peter's uh, genius, uh, you know, in, in this world. Like, they're very much positioning Peter to be the combo of Captain America and Tony Stark. Like, he is the kind of guy that would jump on a grenade like Captain America, you know, he's selfless and looking to do good, but he's also got the brilliance of uh, of Tony uh, without, like, the ego. So I thought that was moving to see this character seemingly kind of, like, accept his role in, in this universe in that in that moment. But back to, the, like, the, the tower scene, like, I, I, love, I loved how that whole was, thing was created and to have the reveal that the Mysterio on the ground wasn't actually him, but Spider-Man could sense it before the audience because of the spider sense, I thought was really clever. Although I wish we had a visual for spider sense that was interesting. Yeah. Like I don't need I don't need electricity shooting out of his head, but like I was watching the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man and he has this thing where his eyes like light up and the and the scene's colors get inverted and it's like, "Oh, that's kind of fun." Uh I just uh, it would be nice to have it as like a, a visual cue for the audience, although this movie plays against that, which is also interesting because we don't get to see what he's feeling. So I'm like on I'm on like a fence on either way for this one. I think I think that's fair, but you know it's so it's funny in that last scene when with the fight with Mysterio, you know at one point, you know he's he he gets you know Peter gets the glasses back and he gives a command to um to get rid of all of the bots. And uh, the gla- you know Stark the Stark Tech glasses. What what's the acronym for the glasses? It's um Edith. Edith. Even in death, I'm the hero. Yeah, there we go. So you know Edith <laughs> Edith confirms, shall I execute them all? Meaning the bots. And uh, Peter responds, yes, execute them all. And I was saying to myself, oh, those words are intentional, and that's gonna that's gonna come back to bite them. <laughs> and do we, and do we want to say how they came back to bite them, Dan? Yeah, let's let's get to the post swing moment because like as soon as the TV screen in like I guess that's like Madison Square Garden yeah um, appears, I was like, oh no, they're gonna do it. This is it. This is the Daily Bugle, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and it was glorious. Yeah, holy cow, folks! J.K. Simmons is back. It's Jay <laughs> Jonah. Jay. I I leapt out of my chair. I I I, I was the highest I've leapt out of my chair in a Marvel movie since like everyone came out of the portals against Thanos at the end of Endgame. So three months ago. <laughs> right, but still. But like similar for for a schlub named J.K. Simmons. Come on, man. Like how awesome yeah. was that? I, like, it was did, super awesome. Did you feel that? Com- did you know anything about that? I had no idea. Uh, I mean, I thought J.B. Smooth was going to be J- uh, a Jameson before the you know this movie, but I guess Marvel got the sense that they're like, 
we really like there's no other choice like it has to be this guy the fans want it he is an actor like says it's his favorite role he's ever had so like why not you know now he's bald and he's back yeah i mean you know it's funny and like even I saw something on Twitter where he was like at the premiere, J.K. Simmons. And even then, I didn't didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, look at that. They got him at the premiere, I guess, you know, celebrating his role with these movies over the years. Like, Like, it was the biggest surprise I think I've ever had in a movie. And what a way to enter revealing Spider Man's identity. But that's the big thing. And, Mark, I have no idea what to feel about this. I mean,. I'm excited because, like, what does it mean that a 16-year-old kid has his identity outed? I'm also very terrified that they're going to sweep this under the rug and be like, either it didn't happen or everybody's okay with that. But, like, in my mind, it sets up two things. Spider Slayers and Craven the Hunter. Uh, talking with my wife after the movie, my first thing was, well, I know they've wanted to bring Craven into these movies in the worst kind of way. I can see them... You know, like Craven showing up being like, I shall take, you know, because, you know, in addition to outing his identity, I mean, they, they use those words, execute them all. Like Mysterio basically stages like this video in his, uh, is oh, I, I know this is a dumb question. Is Mysterio dead or is he just apprehended? I think he's dead. Um, right. I mean, he was shot, yeah, right? right? It seems as though he died. Yeah. So like in his death, he, you know, pulls together one final trick against Spider-Man where he captures, you know, he splices together this video that he sends to the Daily Bugle that shows Spider-Man saying, execute them all, meaning um, the bots, but instead, like, it's framed as him saying, like, execute all the people of London, uh, which kind of explains all the destruction. So, you know, Spider-Man, his identity is out, he's an enemy of the people, he's got the Daily Bugle railing against him, and the first thing that came to my mind is for the next movie, I can absolutely see Craven the Hunter comes in from Africa and he will capture the spider. You know what I mean? Like, I, like, I, right, I, yeah. Know, and save the day. Like, I could see that being the plot. So, or the city hires, you know, like a Spencer Smythe to build robots. Right. You, you know, and now we've got Jonah introduced and we're going down that, that rabbit hole. You know, like it, it could go any which direction. Uh, that that you wanted to go. Um, I don't know what that means for all the other people in his life. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I thought it was interesting that when he's swinging, and this is an Easter egg we'll talk about, you know, in the next segment with Scott, uh, you know, when he's swinging through the city, he swings by the Osborne uh, penthouse from the first three Spider-Man movies. And whether that was just like there in New York, this, I can't believe that would be unintentional by... Sony producing this movie like does that signal that the Osbournes are still a fresh memory uh you know I I don't really know but uh I thought this was really I mean it, it proves it goes to show like you can't really guess where these movies are going in the future I also thought it was really appropriate that um Mysterio be the one involved in adding this because like his first appearance right he dresses up as Spider-Man and tries to frame him for these crimes in Amazing Spider-Man 13. So, like, this is almost just like that mission played out to fruition in, in, the, in the movies. Absolutely. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed our spoiler-filled uh, discussion of this movie, Mark. I had a lot of fun talking about this. Not my favorite Spider-Man movie, but I had a great time. Yeah, again, I mean, we, we've been talking over an hour about it, Dan. I think this was, it was a fun movie. Like you said, not my favorite, but it's a lot of fun. I, I, I'll be curious to see what the rewatchability of this is. I, I know you say you want to see it again. 
Um, but certainly, you know, when it comes to, you know, streaming and all that, I'll be curious what how many times I end up rewatching this because I, um, I don't know. I'm on the I'm on the fence right now about that, but I did enjoy it definitely. Yeah, I've watched Homecoming a lot. Like it's just kind of like a pleasure movie for me because it's got those like rises and falls. And this one is not one that I feel like I'm like, I really want to watch it for Spider-Man. I'll probably just turn on the Mysterio bits because, and we didn't talk about the hallucinations, but like I could watch those things in detail. I want to see giant Mysterio and his giant glove grabbing Spider-Man, like make that my desktop background. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was just brilliantly staged and put together. So, you know, kudos to that. Mysterio, my dream has come true, Dan. Green smokes everywhere. Yes. And giant Ferris wheels. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again, guys. And um, let's go to my conversation with Scott Corelli talking Easter eggs from this movie right now. Well, welcome back from the break. Mark and I just got done reviewing the movie in all the spoilerific detail. But as I said at the top of the show, I was going to be inviting on a special guest to talk about Easter eggs with me. Introduce yourself, special guest. I'm Scott Corelli from Spider-Man Minute. Yeah. uh, Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what the Spider-Man Minute is? Yeah. So uh, Spider-Man Minute is uh, what's called a Movies by Minute podcast, which is uh, where we you take a movie uh, and you... uh, talk about it one minute at a time. So every episode of the podcast, we're talking about one minute of the movie, which if you have never heard of this type of podcast, you probably think it sounds completely insane. Uh, most people do. And then you listen to it and then you get hooked. And it's like one of the only pod types of podcasts that you listen to as a result. Um, Cause it is very, uh, it's a, it's an addictive uh, uh, format I find. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it just allows us to really get into the nitty gritty of, uh, of, of, you know, filmmaking detail and um, things like, uh, uh, you know, things like Easter eggs, like we're here to talk about. Uh, but uh, we specifically, uh, my co-host and I, Zach, Luna uh, discuss the Spider-Man films uh, one minute at a time and uh, it's a daily show Monday through Friday and each episode runs between 20 minutes and sometimes as long as 45 minutes to an hour depending on what we're talking about uh, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love it if uh, some of your listeners would uh, come check us out. Yeah I'm sure some will uh, and many probably already know about your show. I've been a guest on the show well, I don't know how many times you would call it. I think it's three times, but like 10 episodes or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. And by the way, you've divided it up. My my presence is is ever growing on your show, which I'm not sure is a boon or a, or a deficit. <laughs> um, but I love listening to the show. How many of these minute, you know, movies by minute podcasts do you listen to? Because I listen to two. Uh, yeah, I, I keep up with about like, I think three or four, I think, that I'm listening to that I'm not making myself, obviously. Um, yeah, about three or four. Uh, Star Wars Minute is the, uh, that's the, that's the, the home base. That's the, the mothership. That's how I got hooked. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Star Wars Minute are the, they're, they're the mothership of, of this whole uh, franchise. And then I've been doing it. Um, I was the third, I think the third podcast to do the Movies by Minute f- format after uh, Goodfellas Minute. Um, and then I, I did Back to the Future Minute, finished all of that, and now I'm doing Spider-Man Minute. 
And, you know, you started off doing Spider-Man Minute, and then they just kept making Spider-Man movies. Right, Back to right. the Future, thankfully, is, like, over. So you're, like, stuck in this forever. Right, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> That's the plan. All yeah. right, great. So, um, you know, I, you know, I, I clearly, I, I've been on the show and been impressed with what you guys were doing, and... You know, I, I recently appeared on the start of your third season, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, you know, I, I thought to myself, I've got this early press screening. I got an extra ticket. Who is going to be the person that's going to best compliment my ability to spot Easter eggs in this movie? And I thought it's got to be Scott. He, <laughs> he, he, he's going to know his stuff. And, uh, you know, I thought you'd know your movie stuff. But it turns out you are equally adept at the comic book stuff as I am. Uh, in regards to Spider-Man. So uh, you are an impressive person to bring along for us. As listeners know, I write these pieces for the Hollywood Reporter about all the Easter eggs and stuff. So, like, you know, there's only so many eyes I have the first time. So, Scott, you are a big help. So I wanted to thank you in that regard. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to kind of pick the top five Easter eggs that we found that we thought were a lot of fun uh, to talk about on the show. Yeah, no, that that sounds like a sounds like a great idea, and uh, thanks again, Dan, for uh, the opportunity. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So uh, let's just uh, we're going to alternate here. So Scott, you've chosen five, and I've chosen five. It's not all the Easter eggs. You'll have to read the article to he- read about all the Easter eggs we found in the film. But you know, we're going to cover five, or maybe a little bit more than five each. And uh, yeah, anyway, so Scott, why don't you kick your list off with your favorite Easter egg in the film? Uh, so, um, you know, my, my, my fir- the first one that I want to bring up is, uh, kind of the very first one that I noticed in the movie. And, uh, it, it's not specifically Spider-Man related or really at all. It's more of an homage to, uh, another franchise, but, uh, the, the opening of, uh, Far From Home, even before the Marvel Studios logo, we get the, uh, Columbia Torch logo and it, uh, transitions directly into a, uh, a statue in, uh, where, what country are they in? Are they in Mexico or Spain? They're in Mexico. Yeah. They're, they are in Mexico. Yeah. And, uh, and it, the statue is a, it's sort of like this direct transition from the, Columbia logo into the statue, um, which is obviously an homage to the uh, opening transitions from the Paramount uh, logo into the uh, uh, mountains in uh, all of the Indiana Jones movies. And why do you think they did this? I mean, I guess my guess is like, they're, are they setting this up to be more of an action adventure than, than previously, you think? I think it's because it's globe trotting. That's that's my guess. Um, much like uh, Indiana Jones, you know, you, we don't have those uh, those great transition periods of the the dotted plane going over a map in this uh, movie. <laughs> I think it very would well probably benefit with having some of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because it does seem like Europe is extremely small. <laughs> yeah, they movie. are just bouncing around in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, nice little map transition would have been nice. Yeah. So I imagine it's an homage to the overall feel that uh, uh, they were probably uh, going for with this one. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, my first one is also travel related. Uh, Peter goes to, you know, get his passport checked before he travels abroad. And, um, you know, he he hands his his passport over and, you know, you see Peter's passport, but uh, his you know, his birthday is in there. And, you know, I know that Peter's actual birthday is October 14th. And the reason I know that is because it's a holiday in New York City called Spider-Man Day, which was created by Michael Bloomberg. 
and they celebrated. I don't know how many people are celebrating it now, but when they announced it, they celebrated it. And, you know, the Empire State Building went red and blue for Spider-Man, and it was this, like, whole thing, right? Um, but I noticed on this passport, it actually says it's August 10th, not October 14th. But do you know what August 10th is? I sure do. What is August 10th? That is uh, the date of uh, the release of Amazing Fantasy 15. It is, in fact. So uh, they changed his birthday to create an Easter egg, and I'm kind of okay with it. And a pretty obscure Easter egg at that, but a fun one. So when you're looking there, try to see if you can catch a quick glimpse of his ID and, and what the date on there is. It is interesting, though, because on his passport, as per usual, you would have your birth date by year. But they don't have the year in there. So I was wondering, like, because of the blip, have they decided to remove years from things? It doesn't matter with age anymore because it's not actually a signifier of how, like, technically, like, long you've existed. Right. Yeah, I mean, I imagine because they have that joke with Flash, right? And the the, uh, flight attendant doesn't know that he's not 21. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I imagine it's, it, uh, you know, it's to prevent things like that from happening. Yeah, no, no kidding. No kidding. All right, cool. What's next on your list? Well, the next one on my list is, uh, you know, definitely there's a few of these um, in both of our lists that uh, are very close to home for me currently, as I am uh, neck deep in the Raimi trilogy uh, at, over on Spider-Man Minute. And this one uh, is is especially a, in a great... Um, Easter egg, I think, where, you know, obviously there are posters in the uh, scene after uh, Spider-Man and uh, Aunt May have a, uh, a speech for uh, her homeless shelter uh, feast, sort of not feast, but kind of feast um, <laughs> organization <laughs> that she has. Uh, and when they're backstage, there are posters for wrestling matches. And obviously, uh, Crusher Hogan is the uh, the main event that they that they use. The wrestler that Peter went up against in his, back in his wrestling days in uh, Amazing Fantasy 15. However, the uh, the addition of that's that's a great enough Easter egg. But then the addition of having uh, one of the people that he's fighting on the poster is Bonesaw McGraw, uh, the wrestler that Peter fights in the first Sam Raimi movie. Uh, that's, that's, uh, I, I love that. I love that sort of thing. Like that's, that's really great. And now I really just want to see the match between Crusher and Bonesaw because I don't know. I don't know. I just know the Bonesaw is ready. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he would defeat Crusher or not. Uh, but I would love to see that, that match. So long as he had the person in the audience with the cardboard saw, that's, yes. that's, that's all that matters to me. Yeah, that's the most important part. All right, next on my list is uh, the Iron Man graffiti. And you can see this in the trailer. Um, Peter, like, kind of climbs up on top of, like, Feast at one point, And, you know, he's kind of been tasked with kind of, like, standing up for Iron Man's legacy. And he looks and he sees this graffitied image of Iron Man. And there's two graffitied images of Iron Man. I'm talking about the big one, not the just the head one, the one with the full body. Although if you look closely at the just the head one, there's an interesting thing where if you like there's like a black light image that reveals Tony's face in it if you look really carefully. Oh, but, interesting. Uh, yeah, but um the big one on the wall that's really spectacular. I saw that and I thought like that image looks really familiar. Why does it look so familiar? So I scanned through covers of Iron Man comics and I found that Volume 3 of The Invincible Iron Man with artist Sean Chen uses the exact same posing as that character on the side of the wall 
there, but it's not the same artwork. Um, which is funny because then in volume four of the Invincible Iron Man, with artwork by Addy Granov, which is uh, you know the uh, extremist storyline, in issue four of that series, that same posing is on the cover just with Addy's artwork. So it seemed to be this like common pose that Iron Man would often be in, you know, whether it was considered iconic and people were doing it intentionally, it seems very intentional. But then that exact image or that pose rather was then updated into a lifelike rendering for promotional art for Avengers Age of Ultron, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like kind of where it got its like realistic spin. And um, then Insomniac took that promotional art and slapped it on the cover of their PlayStation 4 VR game that's coming out, the Iron Man game, which is like must have been why it registered in my brain. So you can watch this slow evolution from comic cover to comic cover to movie promo art to video game. And the video game image is the one that they've slapped on the wall here and given a graffiti like texture and style but it's literally that image. So I just kind of had fun tracing the evolution of these images. And I even, there was a cover of Invincible Iron Man uh, that uh, John Romita Sr. did where it looks really similar to this pose, but his hand isn't extended. So I was trying to think like, uh, do we think it traces all the way back to Romita Sr.? But I couldn't make quite as strong as a case about that. So I left it be. But, you know, this is how comics slowly update themselves to appear. One image translates to another image to another image. And, uh, you know, that's where we get this beautiful piece of graffiti today. Wow, that's uh, that was a real rabbit hole. That was, that was, <laughs> that was really interesting. I know. I've, I'm already gone cross-eyed just talking about it. <laughs> uh, well, my third one is, uh, is a shout-out to a relationship that I honestly didn't really think we would ever see in a movie or anything because it's such a uh, like it's a kind of a major relationship in the um you know in the grand scheme of amazing spider-man uh but it's it's has very little to do with peter so it was interesting that they that they gave the shout out to ned and betty um and i i just love that you know we've we've been um I think uh, collectively uh, Spider-Man fans have been a little, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, baffled, a little scratching our heads a little about whether or not Ned in this is Ned Leeds or if he's really just sort of ganky or what what the deal is like because he's he's kind of both, but also neither. Um, and uh, and so I, I really appreciated uh, uh, Ned and, and Betty uh, Brandt having their fling here um, so that at least we can say that they did it. Uh, and uh, just like in the comics, uh, it's a little off and on. Um, so yeah. off and on <laughs> is putting it uh, mildly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I was, I was very uh, pleased to see that happen. And it was a really nice way to give these two characters something to do in this movie. Um, Cause you know, Betty was basically uh, uh, like, kind of very basic uh, com- com- comedic relief in the first movie. She's like um, a featured she- extra often. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So it was really nice giving her a storyline and then giving Ned something uh, to do because I-, I bet the actor who plays Ned probably had no idea that he would get to be, have like a romance in a movie before. Uh, you know, <laughs> like he's just he's just not that type of actor. So it was probably a really cool thing for him to to get to play and uh, I was really happy to see it. It was a, it was a really 
definitely a nice Easter egg for us longtime fans. And now he's probably back to just watching porn. <laughs> yeah. He's the man in the chair. What he does in that chair is no one's business. But it's yeah, not. yeah, yeah. Well, we have some uh, uh, highlights of it. <laughs> so my next one, it takes place in Venice when the group goes to Venice. And um, there's a minute where the teachers and chaperones and, and you know student peers of Peter Parker are running through the streets away from Hydro Man. And they round a corner... And up on the wall are the street names in Venice, which is where all the street names are because they don't really have like street corners necessarily in Venice. Have you ever been to Venice? No, I have not. Oh, yeah. It's great because it's just this endless maze of streets and there's just no way to not get lost. And that's kind of half the fun. But those streets are called uh, – I don't know if it's Calle. I know that's like Spanish, but like it's not really Italian. But they call their streets Calles. And it's like refers to the thin, narrow streets that like jut through Venice. But their calles all have, uh, you know, in this one wall, it's four uh, Spider-Man writers' names with the letter O tacked on the end. So it's like vaguely Italian, I guess. <laughs> um, and the four as an as an Italian, I am highly offended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. So. <laughs> I mean, it is lazy as, as all get out, but I mean, the joke is there. So if, you, if you're fast enough to catch it, it's Sterno, Slotto, Bendiso, and Michelinio. Um, so that would be Roger Stern, Dan Slott, Brian Michael Bendis, and David Michelini, whose names all appear on the wall. I'm not exactly sure why they chose the ones that they chose. Like, I get Slot, I get Bendis. I don't think necessarily that there's a stern storyline that really ties into this movie at all. Or uh-huh. Michelini, like, he's mostly known for Venom and Carnage, who most definitely don't show up here. So, <laughs> I don't know. I probably have to think a little bit harder about how they might tie into this movie. Like, I don't think Stern or Michelini ever wrote, like, a Hydro Man comic, you know? So, I don't know why they were there, but they were there, and I laughed about it as I was feverishly writing down the names and, uh, you know, see if you can catch it. Yeah. So then my, uh, my next one I would say is kind of a big one. I mean, it's, it's, uh, a, a major set piece in the movie. So it's, it's, uh, Easter egg, I guess is, uh, well, I don't know if it's quite really an Easter egg. Let's but call it a reference. Yeah. It's more of a reference. Um, but it's, it's, uh, just mysterious hallucinations and that, that those two sequences, um, in the film are just, especially the first one. Um, are are just uh, mind blowing. It's it's the kind of thing that I've waited my entire life to see. I mean, Mysterio is uh, a top three uh, Spider Man villain for me, and so getting to see his uh, like his his hallucinations in uh, uh, live action, you know, live action. I guess put loosely because it's CGI, but um, but you know, it just it's beautiful. It's so well done, and it looks exactly like it's always looked in uh in the comics and they they recreate a couple of like it seems like a couple of uh spider-man covers and it just feels like everything that i could possibly want uh out of a a mysterio uh action sequence in a spider-man movie it just it just blew me away well you're definitely getting amazing spider-man 67 the giant mysterio right there's a great sequence where the giant hand just grabs Spider-Man. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I've been waiting my whole life to see that. Um, 
And I think that's just the very concept of a Mysterio that controls, like, robots indirectly. Mm-hmm. Like, he'd always been a lot more involved in his kind of capers. But in Amazing Spider-Man 618 to 620, he, like, controls, like, a robot Silvermane and all these things from, like, a centralized control point where you can right. see all the action and that's exactly how this Mysterio is is portrayed in the in these moments so I, I I have to think that that was what inspired this Mysterio yeah I think you're probably right about that um, but I also got uh, a big feeling of um, I don't know if you played any of the uh, the Arkham games uh, the the Batman Arkham sure, Asylum sure, games, sure. Uh, but every Scarecrow level, it sort of reminded me of that a little bit. Um, the way that it was uh, structured, and because it's one thing to, um, I don't know, read a comic and imagine what it would feel like, but it's it, you know, it's different to have uh, uh, you know, three dimensions and and seeing every frame of it, um, of of the actions uh, taking place, and you're not you're not using your brain to sort of fill in the spaces between the panels. Um, and, and it was, it did remind me a lot of the scarecrow levels in, uh, Arkham Asylum, which was, I remember playing those levels and just being like, I mean, this is cool, but, uh, scarecrow is not Mysterio. And this is basically Mysterio, right? I mean, that's what's (laughs) happening here. Uh, and then, yeah, here it is, uh, now in this movie and, uh, it plays out exactly like I always imagined it. I would love to see Mysterio in a sequel to the Spider-Man PS4 game. We kind totally. of got a little bit of that with the Scorpion, where he's like poison sequences, yeah. but not quite to the level that I would want them to go to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So next on my list is the Osborne Penthouse. Yes. Uh, which, like, in the final moments of the movie, Spider-Man and, and MJ are, like, swinging around town. And I don't know for sure that they planned this, because... Like, maybe they were just swinging around that part of the city because they needed to get to, uh, you know, Spider-Man over to Madison Square Garden, which is, like, it's not nearby, but it's not far away from where that actual penthouse is in real life. But these are the the Osborne penthouses from Spider-Man 1 through 3, the Raimi films, which you're covering. Um, It jumps out immediately when you see it on screen. Like, that's the Osborne penthouse. And you got to think, like, Sony producing, you know, these movies... They wanted to throw in, you know, a little nod to their history in some way. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty, like, loaded nod, especially considering what would come next, you know, in in that sequence. Uh, I mean, do you th- suspect this was like a tease at the Osbournes returning into the series in some way? I mean, it feels like they've been teasing that for a while, right? I mean, that's what everybody thought was happening with uh, Stark moving out of Stark Tower, uh, in homecoming, so I, I, you know, maybe they're doing a slow build up to it. Uh, I, I personally don't want to see them in the series until uh, Peter hits college. Uh, I think that's about when I want to see them start repeating characters and villains and things sure, like that. Sure. Um, let's do. Let's go. Let's go. One more high school one with brand new stuff that we haven't seen on screen before. Uh, but uh, you know, they could be uh, working their way up to it. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, well, yeah, that one's an exciting one, and I think anybody who knows the, that building will uh, will you know notice it. It it, ta- it actually exists in between 40th and 43rd Street in Manhattan, in between First and Second Avenue on that East River. So if you ever want to go and check it out, uh, you know that's where it is. Go go take a look at where the Osbournes and their humble abode is. Uh, so my absolute favorite. 
uh, Easter egg in this movie um, is the thing that, uh, you know, when it happened, I my my mouth dropped open. I almost stood out of my chair like I was so happy. Uh, And this was, of course, the moment where uh, we learned that Quentin Beck has uh, sent video of a uh, of a uh, confession of a big reveal. Uh, to uh, the dailybugle.com and who else is running it but J. Jonah Jameson, played by none other than the man who's played him three times previously, J.K. Simmons. Uh, and this was this was such a, a an insane thing for them to do. It's the thing that people have always been saying that's what they should do, that they should just bring him back because no one else is going to be able to play this role as well as he did. So what's the point? But I I never thought they would actually go through with it. I thought for sure they would recast him somehow. Uh, and uh, apparently, whoever the powers that be, I don't know if it was Feige or if it was John Watts or who it was, but uh, somebody made sure that uh, they didn't cast anyone but the man himself, J.K. Simmons, and uh, I couldn't be happier. Just you wait. Willem Dafoe is going to come back to this series. <laughs> well, he's, he'd be better than Chris Cooper. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, no, this this was incredible. And, you know, I love that it's positioned like he's a part of the fact channel. You know, like it, yes. it, it's like this. He's become this like uber right wing nut job, like uh, conspiracy theorist on TV that's kind of like disregarded. But yet he has this. He's like the Drudge Report or whatever, but he, but he has this video that's going to actually like solidify what he has to say, and I'm very excited about that. We talked in the, our review that like I suspect that maybe we're getting like Spider Slayers out of this or or Craven the Hunter. You you pose that to me even in the theater. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think that that's uh, that's obviously to me th- it's very obvious that that's where this is leading to because Craven's the last big gun that they've got. You know, the last the last bullet in the chamber that they haven't fired. Um, and so I can't imagine that that's not going to be the villain of the next film. And I think they set up uh, Chameleon in this film, if I'm not incorrect, with the Dimitri character. I mean, mm-hmm. why else br- bring in a character that looks like Craven? And is named Dimitri. If you're right. not going to go with his half brother Chameleon, yes, I I completely agree. I think you're uh, spot on with that. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um. So my final one is actually like a group of them, and it's what I'm calling the license plate Easter eggs. It's like the laziest Easter eggs in this movie, and there's a lot of them like that. And I I, I got to feel like there was someone whose job it was just to come up with weird numbers for things to put on the back of license plates because it kind of feels exactly that random right yes definitely so we've got like one like for example and part of the like fun of it is like while you're watching the movie seeing if you can like live decipher their like (laughs) numbering pattern you know this drove me insane as someone who can watch a minute of my movie over and over and over as many times as i want to get the details i want out of it uh this was maddening (laughs) it's nice because sometimes they'll cut away from it and you'll be like god damn and then like a minute they'll cut back and you're like oh i got it this time yeah oh the editor was smiling on me today Uh, yeah right 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 someone knows that 
that I, Dan Gavaz, and have to compile these. So, <laughs> um, uh, so like, for example, during the opening of the movie with the Sandman, if that's what you want to call him, on one of the license plates, like, barely visible are the numbers 463. Now, any other person would look at that and go, oh, that's just a normal license plate. But what it means is it's a reference to Amazing Spider-Man number four, the first appearance of the Sandman, which was published in 1963. Like, that's how dumb we're getting here, right? (laughs) So, like, when they're traveling through Venice before Hydro-Man shows up, we get ASM 212, which is the first appearance of Hydro-Man in, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 212. But then some of them are more, like, obscure than even that. Like, one of them, when they're in... I don't even know if they're in Berlin when this happens, but there's one that says ASM 289, which is, like... The reveal of the Hobgoblin issue that, like, it's Ned Leeds where he's, like, already dead and we find out what happened, like, after the Spider-Man versus Wolverine storyline. So Mm -hmm. it's, like, it has nothing to do with what's going on in this movie except that, like, the flashbacks with Ned take place in Berlin. That's it. That's it, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's another one on the back of a uh, shield vehicle that says MTU83797, and that means uh, Marvel Team-Up number 83 from 1979 in July, which is when it was released, which, okay, great. And what is Marvel Team-Up 83? It's an issue where Spider-Man teams up with Nick Fury. That makes sense. So you're seeing, yeah, that one makes some sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one makes some sense. And then you get. It's definitely a less tenuous connection than 289. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, then we had 2865 SEP, which is for Amazing Spider Man number 28, which was published in 1965 in September. And that's the first appearance of the Molten Man. And then we had. TASM 143, which is the famous one where Spider-Man goes to Paris and fights the Cyclone, and the first issue where he kisses Mary Jane, which I thought was like nice. It's like a double one yeah. for this movie. Um, and then lastly, on the back of Aunt May's car, uh, when she picks up Peter at the end, is AMF 1562, which I don't think I need to say what that is, but it's <laughs> Amazing Fantasy 15 from 1962. So right. they're, they're lousy all over the place. Um, and I don't think they're typically that hard to spot so long as you can decipher that they're actually something. Yeah. Who do you think was the first person in the crew uh, to put together that ASM-143 had both the Mary Jane kiss and the cyclone, both of which they are going to directly reference at the end in the third act, like at the same time in the movie. Like I, I just, I feel like that, uh, did they do that on purpose or was that an entirely like crazy random happenstance that it just happened to be those two things. Like I just, that's because it's such a tiny thing like it's it's not it's not like the cyclone is like a super well-known villain you know for spider-man no not at all that issue is like really only known for the kiss and even then like you know the kiss is like often it's like a secondary image to mj's first appearance right yeah that is a that is a very like that issue doesn't even sell for a ton you know what i mean like that is a very random thing to 
build your third act structure around if that's all you're trying to do is make that <laughs> reference. Yeah. So it's, it had to have been just a crazy random happenstance. But like the first person who was like, hey, you know, there was an issue with the Cyclone and Peter and Mary Jane's first kiss. And like, I just, I feel like that would have blown my hair back if I was on that set when somebody made that connection the first time. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. I didn't think about it that way, but yeah. Yeah, now <laughs> I can't. I, I can't help but think, like, yeah, when when did that find its way into the, you know? Because I mean, I guess the elementals are so random. You you get you could kind of do them in any order, but not really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is pretty wild. Yeah. And like, they're pretty essential to the plot line. I guess they could maybe have found another like nature-based villain to do there, like Plant Man or something like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> Is there a Poison Ivy of the Marvel Universe? I'm trying to think. Uh, there's a Swamp Thing, but I don't That's know about... That's true, yeah. There's Man Thing, but I don't know about a, about a Poison Ivy. That's a, that's a missed opportunity. Well, yeah. anyway, those are our Easter eggs and references. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about these. Anytime. I, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, this is fun. So, uh, Scott, you know, you mentioned a little bit about Spider-Man Minute at the beginning, but tell us what you're doing right now on Spider-Man Minute. Well, right now we've just started our third season. So uh, in 2017, we covered the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. Uh, Last year, we covered Spider-Man 2. And now we're starting season three with Spider-Man 3. Uh, And uh, so far, it has been uh, educational. And, uh, and, and very, very fun, uh, because it's a movie that I don't think is as bad as a lot of people remember it. Um, it's not, it's certainly the weakest of the three movies by a a fairly large margin, but I think that it has some of the best action sequences of those three films. Um, and I think that there's a lot in the movie to really love and interpret and, uh, I don't know, go back over with a fine tooth comb and really try and figure out like, why do some of these things work and other things don't what's going on here. And we really dug into the history of this film and like we did with the other ones, but especially with this one, trying to figure out exactly where the miscommunications were happening. Um, you know, why certain decisions were made versus others. And, uh, uh, have really tried to get in deep on this movie. And I, I think that we are um, uh, just, uh, you know, I think we're, we're really uh, getting in there and I'm, I'm really excited about um, the things that we're uncovering as we've been going through this season. And you guys don't just like do this from like a shallow way. It's like to the level of these Easter eggs, right? Like you're, you're reading the scripts and reading the behind the scenes, like diaries and, and reading like books published about the makings of these films. It's not like a, just like a fly by night affair. Right, right, exactly. There, There is a ton of research involved. I mean, if you go back and you listen to any of our episodes that uh, we did where we talked about the development of Spider-Man um, or, well, the development of Spider-Man in particular, the first film, uh, took us, I think, three episodes to get through uh, because of how involved it was to get Spider-Man on the big screen for the first time. And then, you know, the same thing uh, with the second one, the behind-the-scenes nature of the development of that film was uh, pretty insane. 
what with Jake Gyllenhaal almost replacing Tobey Maguire in the film um, and what that would have led to. And the same obviously can be said about Spider-Man 3. There's lots of stuff to talk about there. But then, of course, uh, Zach, my co-host, is uh, big into costuming. He wor- has worked in uh, costume departments. Um, specifically, he's worked on the costumes for uh, Aquaman and Black Panther, uh, amongst others. And so he knows a lot about costuming. And so he any episode where he talks about the costumes in the Spider-Man series uh, are always ones to definitely uh, check out uh, because he uh, he really knows his stuff. Well, that's super awesome. And I, I love the show uh, you know, enough that I've been on it a few times. And uh, I'm coming up pretty soon in, in Spider-Man 3. So if you want to hear my take on Spider-Man 3, which I've not really talked about on my show at all. So... Um, you know, that might be something for my listeners to tune into. But um, even if you're not interested in hearing about Spider-Man 3, you can always just go back to Spider-Man 1 or 2 and, and find out about the scenes that, like, you care about the most and stuff. And and, and also, you know, Scott and Zach have a really great online uh, you know, fan base that's very engaged with them. So that's a lot of fun to kind of participate with, too, I think. Yeah, we're very lucky in that. Well, I think you do some good work cultivating it. So, uh, hey, thanks again, Scott, for coming on the show. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, same here, Dan. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again to Scott Corelli from the Spider-Man Minute podcast for joining you, Dan, to talk about Spider-Man Far From Home. And thanks uh, to all of you for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the Spider-Man Minute podcast as they start their coverage of Spider-Man 3. Dan... What's coming down the pike for our humble show in the future? Well, next week, we've got our second review roundup of the Hunted storyline, which should be exciting. And if you haven't already checked it out, go back and listen to our last podcast released this morning, all about my experience at the What's Up Danger show celebrating Into the Spider-Verse. I kind of whipped up this bonus pod, and I hope that you guys enjoy it. Awesome work, Dan. Well, also for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week where we've already got special reviews of the entire Nick Spencer run up through issue number 24. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork, this time from Barry Kitson, as he depicts the tremendously sad moment when Spider-Man learned of Gwen's demise. Plus, we've got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And we've even got a channel there discussing... You know, behind a spoiler wall, all of our thoughts on Spider-Man Far From Home. So if you've seen the movie and you want to talk about it with someone, come join our Spider-Slack. Well, Dan, where can we find you on the interweb? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, refraining from talking about this movie until, I guess, what, nine days later? That's when the Endgame spoiler wall was lifted. <laughs> uh, you know, is the same thing going to hold true here? Because they don't have to advertise the next Marvel movie? We'll see. I'm I'm going to try not to spoil this for people. Yeah, that will be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope I didn't spoil anything for you, Mark, with my early uh, tweets about it. No, not at all. Not in the least, Dan. We are good. <laughs> all right. Well, where can people find you on the internet? Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. And as always, if you want to learn more about Mysterio and everyone else that appears in these movies, you can check out my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Awesome, Mark. Well, uh, you know, one thing is always true about Spider-Man, whether he's a mass murderer or not. 
per lens of Mysterio. And uh, what is that, Mark? Of course, we all know with great podcasts must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk.